0: Welcome to Hey YA Extra Credit. Every other week, opposite the main Hey YA podcast, we'll bring you a short-form podcast either as a book club discussion with a beloved YA author or as a look at two backlist YA books you'll want on your TBR. I'm Kelly Jensen. Today's episode, I'll be chatting with Lef Rosen, author of Camp, about a queer camp. And I'm going to leave it at that because I am going to go ahead and let you talk about yourself and this book, which will come out the week before this podcast runs. So it'll be out and available for anybody to pick up.
1: Cool. Hi. Hi, I'm I'm Lev. Thank you for having me, Kelly. Yeah. I'm Lev Rosen. I sometimes go by L.C. Rosen. Uh, I wrote Jack of Hearts and Other Parts and Camp, which is out in May. And yeah, it's about a It's a sweet summer romantic comedy at a queer summer camp. So if you are missing out on those (laughs) summer vibes for some reason or another, I would dive into that one. Uh, Please buy my book.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I loved it. It was a great like queer rom-com is the quickest, easiest way to describe it. And I know that that's like the selling point for readers, right?
1: Yeah, no, I like just summer rom-com, but it also has, you know, like an entirely queer cast and it's about mm-hmm. the queer community and the way we deal with stuff like the mask for mask culture, toxic masculinity and, and internalized homophobia and, you know, how the straight world can still intrude on queer meccas essentially and what mm-hmm. we as the queer community have to do about it.
0: I know that readers are going to eat it up.
1: Knock on wood.
0: yeah i sat down and blew through it and loved it thank you it was just it was exactly what i needed and i think it'll be a really big breath of fresh air for for a lot of readers
1: i hope so i really hope that like queer kids who are stuck at home with their straight parents right now like Mm -hmm. i really want them to get this book and be like oh right queer summer love community and like have all that to escape to (laughs) absolutely
0: absolutely absolutely so I'm going to hit our first sponsor before we dive in, and I'm so excited to talk about this book with you. Our first sponsor, our only sponsor for today's show, is TBR, Book Riot's service for tailored book recommendations, which you can now gift. If your favorite book lover is hard to shop for, consider giving them a the gift of TBR, Book Riot's subscription service offering tailored book recommendations for readers of all stripes. Choose from plans that allow your loved one to receive hardcover books in the mail or recommendations by email as a one-time gift or a year-long subscription, and sit back while our bibliologists do the rest. When your recipient receives their gift, they'll complete a profile to tell TBR about their reading preferences and what they're looking for, and they can even connect it to their Goodreads account. We'll then match them up with a bibliologist who will handpick recommendations for them. Gifts start at just $15, there's an option for every budget. TBR is produced in partnership with Print, a bookstore in Portland, Maine. So when you treat someone's shelf, you're supporting an indie too. Visit mytbr.co slash gift to sign up today. That's mytbr.co slash gift. All right, let's get talking. Before we talk about the book, let's talk about how we picked this book.
1: Yeah, I know. I know. After my my sweet rom com thing, I, I, I when you were like, "What book do you want?" I was like, "I want murder."
0: Yeah, yeah. You were very clear on like murder, uh, something. <laughs> think <I> went <laughs>
1: yeah,
0: murder, and and like there was no question; it was going to be queer in some capacity, and we wanted it to be an own voices story. Mm-hmm. But other than that, it's like, okay, murder. Where where are we going to find this? And there are like three options.
1: Well, I really also wanted it to be pre-Simon versus the Homosexuality yes. Agenda, just because I feel like for a lot of modern readers, uh, that feels like the start of Contemporary Queer YA, but yes. Contemporary Queer YA has been going on since before Stonewall, you know, mm-hmm. so I really wanted to make sure that if we were going to do a backlist title, we were going to explore stuff that came out before the interest in Queer YA really exploded because of that book.
0: Yes, and I love that that was sort of the like those were the markers for finding a book, and I think we had it down to like two or three we were choosing between. And uh, after reading this one, I've read it before, this is my second read through. It was fascinating to read it through the lens of it coming out before the big like surge in Queer YA happened. So the book, everybody's like, okay, we've been talking for five minutes. We haven't even mentioned the <laughs> book name. Uh, it's "Far from you" by Tess Sharp which came out in 2014. I want to say early in the year in 2014. Mm -hmm. I remember I read it when it came out. So this was my second read of the book and I loved it the first time. I think I liked it more the second time.
1: I had never read it before, um, but I really loved it. It definitely hit that, that noir murdery place sweet spot that I really needed to (laughs) hit for For some reason. (laughs) <laughs> for writing a romantic comedy, I was just like, got to get something else in my system.
0: <laughs> right. And and for me, like, I'm not a big, well, I'll just say it. I don't care for thrillers. And there's been this big surge in thrillers for the last five years. And for me, they're all the same. They're all predictable. And I know that's super unfair to say because they're not. But um, me as a reader, I'm just like, eh, I don't care. So this was really great because it was very much a murder mystery instead of a thriller. Mm-hmm. And it was really refreshing for me to read that. I read it a couple of books after I read your rom-com too. And I guess I was also <laughs> like, I need murder mystery. <laughs>
1: Sometimes You just got to balance things.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Do you want to uh, to describe the book?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so, I mean, I, I can read the back of it if you, but or do you want it in my own words? Put it in your own words. Okay. So, yeah. Um, it's extremely Veronica Mars. That's like my my own words. And I love Veronica Mars. And it is about, um, Sophie and she, uh, I can't remember how old she is. She's like, she's young, like 12, 13, and she's in a car accident that leaves her disabled. And, um, she has to take pain medication, which she eventually becomes addicted to, and just as she's sort of back from a not official rehab, but living with her aunt who has talked her through stuff, she comes back to her best friend, who she has more than a friendship with, which you can get to in a little bit. And she, uh, ha- she's clean, and um, her best friend, who is like a reporter type, they're driving to a party, and her friend is like, "Oh wait, we just have to go." meet a contact about a story I've been working on, a secret story that I'm not going to tell you about. And they go and um, a masked man kills her friend and plants drugs on Sophie. So when the cops come, it looks as though it was a drug deal gone wrong. Sophie's shipped off to rehab again, um, like an official rehab by her parents who believe it was a drug deal gone wrong as well. And when she gets out which is kind of the start of the book although chronologically it has like every other chapter is a flashback of some kind when she gets out she is even though everyone believes it was a drug deal gone wrong and it was her fault she is out to find who really killed her best friend slash lover sort of
0: (laughs) (laughs) that's a really great succinct description of the book
1: it was not (laughs) succinct at all but thank you (laughs)
0: Well, it was because there are so many things going on in here. It's hard to describe it without necessarily giving away everything. Although I don't think that you can give away everything in this one.
1: I mean, yeah, I, we're not going to talk about who done it, right? Like we'll leave right. that for people.
0: And honestly, for me, that was the least interesting part of the book.
1: Yeah. I mean, when when we finally got it, I was like, okay, we got it. Awesome. Like I feel like you know I understand everything now, mm-hmm. but it's so much more about this idea of like navigating not only what her relationship to this girl was, but what her relationship to the people around her who don't believe that this wasn't her fault in any way. Yes, like it, it's a it's about her relationship with um with her dead friend whose name is Mina. We should probably say Mina with uh her brother who is a little in love with Sophie and how he doesn't really necessarily believe. And with her own parents, I really found the stuff with her parents extremely compelling who definitely do not believe that they weren't going there for drugs. And that's why they ship her off to rehab.
0: It's funny. You bring up the um, relationship she has with their parents, because I don't necessarily remember that from the first time I read it, but Reading it this time, that was actually what really compelled me the most is she has this rocky relationship with her parents. And it left me questioning a lot about the bigger question in terms of when somebody has had an addiction, at what point do they stop being judged by that? Mm -hmm. Because Sophie is talking about throughout um, in the present that she has not done drugs. And it's like nine months, so many days. I can't remember. She she names it. She knows the exact number.
1: Yeah. Frequently as sort of a mantra to remind herself to stay clean.
0: Yes. And as a reader at first, I was like, I don't know if I believe her or if this is a story she's telling herself. But the more I got to know her as a reader, the more I was like, why don't her parents like listen to her? Why aren't they believing her? And I feel like that is the sort of exploration of how we view addiction more broadly. And it was fascinating to see how that played out in terms of Sophie putting the pieces together of the murder of her best friend.
1: Yeah, no, I agree completely. The, the I thought, oh man, her dad, her dad who like on some level, like you don't see him that much in the book, or at least he doesn't have as much dialogue, let's say. Mm-hmm. And Her dad is just so, like, I don't want to say tragic, but he always made me feel very emotional with the way that, like, he's just sort of quiet and there. And, like, Sophie can tell from the way she watches him that he's like terrified <laughs> yes uh and i thought that was done so well and then on the flip side the mom who it, like does not believe her at all like is immediately like rehab and it's a lawyer and you know is like rehab that way you know you don't get in trouble for this murder um which i didn't entirely understand and that felt like a mom lawyer excuse thing you <laughs> like and just like the The harshness, but we sort of, you know, there's a reveal later on about where that harshness comes from. That was kind of devastating, Mm -hmm. and so I thought that was. I just, I was really captivated by the parents. I thought they were so well done, and the relationship and that feeling that Sophie has the whole time of like intense frustration that no one, that her parents especially are not believing her, felt so on the nose and like so on the nose, not just in a like an addict-y way, mm-hmm. but it felt like something, and I hate it when people do this, so I apologize to addicts and like who feel like it was a very particular experience if this is, is disrespectful, but it felt like something that teenagers could relate to even if they aren't addicts. Yes. Um, and I'm sure they relate much more strongly to it if they are, and I mm-hmm. just, I'm sure it's extremely specific, but that idea of trying to be an adult and having no one really trust you felt very teenage to me yes very authentic
0: it did and just the way I found it so fascinating the way she would describe her parents and her mother especially just this like hard strict challenging like Mm -hmm. you know she couldn't break through to her no matter what she did and it was so frustrating for me as a reader because at first I was very much like thinking in terms of Mina's parents, or Sophie's parents, like, well, I don't know if I believe her, you know. Um, but then the book pushes back on me as a reader and says, why don't you believe her? Is it because she's a drug addict? Is it because, you know, she she's a teenager? And I had to stop a couple times and be like, why am I thinking that about her? Why don't I give her the chance? And what the book does that I think is so brilliant is it's told in present and then with flashbacks and you mm-hmm. see the different ages, different time periods. And I think that by the story being told that way, I was able to really understand that Sophie was not lying. She wasn't an unreliable narrator here.
1: No, because in those flashbacks when she is addicted, like it is very like I just it, like it felt very like the the voice is, is filled with excuses almost. Mm-hmm. But like it's, it's also not hiding anything.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. like there was no way she could hide it any longer, and I think part of that ties in to what we learn in, in these flashbacks, that it was Mina who really pushed her to address her addiction, mm-hmm. and and did so in a way that for Sophie didn't feel good, but was probably the only way it was going to be addressed head on.
1: Yeah, and the... That's that's such a great scene where she figures out that it was Mina who told her parents, and then it uh, uh, are we can we spoil this part here a little? Oh yeah,
0: yeah, go ahead. It's it's a book that came out six years ago, so we can yeah, spoil. I feel it.
1: bad anyway. I feel bad. <laughs> but, okay, so when she goes over to see her best friend Mina before she gets shipped off to live with her aunt, she can tell immediately that Mina is the one who told her parents and Mina had been raising concerns for a while. And then it's in their sort of like rage love moment that seems to be the first time they have sex. Yes. And like, it's just this intense moment of like, I understand you did this cause you love me, but I'm still so angry at you because, and part of that is because like you would do this for me because you love me, but like, you won't come out. And really, like say that you love me, or come out in general, because that's, mm-hmm. that's sort of the the, the big issue with the relationship is that Minas comes from a religious family and is terrified of coming out and so that moment of like you'll do this for me, but not that for me, but like you love me this much, but not that much was really fascinating.
0: yes, I thought that that was such a Moment of emotional intensity. It happened um, when they were 16, 10 months prior to um, okay. when the story is set. And she says that the betrayal swamped her and she wanted to punch her. Uh, Sophie wanted to do this to Mina. And then just a few pages later, there's on page sex where it's like that emotional buildup then had an opportunity to release. And it was, it was such a, It's like three pages long, but maybe one of the most emotionally tense in the whole book.
1: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's so intense.
0: And I wrote in the margins, I don't remember this when I read it the first time, but so this book came out in 2014 and I remember it was the first or one of the very first to use the actual identification bisexual in a YA book. And that was such a huge moment for so many readers. I remember like a billion blog posts about it. You know, this was back when book blogging was still like the way you learned about books. And so I'm surprised I didn't remember this because it's not a fade to black sort of uh sex scene. Like it happens on page and we still, even now, don't see that much on-page queer sex. I mean, you can talk a bit about that. I, I'm <laughs> waiting for you to say something. Um
1: <laughs> I'm like, this feels like, a, I, I, if I could see you right now, I feel like you'd be looking pointedly at me. <laughs> I mean, so I am less familiar with queer women's YA. Sure, yeah. It, but... um. I mean, I feel like definitely there is more on the page stuff than there is these days. There's still a lot of pushback that I have. Oh, yeah. There's a sex scene in camp that (laughs) 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 it was like my biggest edit essentially was scaling Mm -hmm. that back to the point that my editors were okay with it. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's still there. It's still there. And I'm still
0: confused
1: with it. But like, you know. I think one review was like, it's great except for this sex scene. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, calm down. But uh um, right. like there there I mean, Cody Keplinger I think has a, a, a vaginal woman on woman fisting scene, I think, in one book. Yes,
0: right? I think she does.
1: Like so it's been there for ever. It's just that like when it happens, I feel like people don't talk about it. Or they, like, don't talk about the book in general and they try to sort Mm. of push it out of the way. Which is silly to me just because, like, teens know what sex is. Right.
0: (laughs) I think, too, like, how moving and how valuable scenes like the one in this book, scenes like the one in your book, are to those teens who need that. Who aren't getting it or are only able to get that information from unhealthy places. Whereas when they read it in a book, it comes from this totally different perspective. And it's much more healthy and helpful than seeking out, say, you know, porn on the internet, which Mm -hmm. could be anything.
1: When, When I wrote Jack of Hearts out in paperback, same day as camp, Um, bonus (laughs) content. Uh, when I was at Hearts, which is, you know, about a a queer teen sex advice columnist, Mm -hmm. um, uh, I like so much of the intention behind that was making sure that queer teens got some sexual education that wasn't porn. Yes. Because I think books can do that. And I think that generally, especially, you know, here in the US, that school system is really letting a lot of teens down generally, but Mm -hmm. letting queer teens down very specifically in that it's not even addressed. It's not even addressed. I went to one of the most liberal, like private schools in New York city and you know, my sex ed was putting a condom on a banana. Mm -hmm. And today I've talked to the person. They're like, now we're incorporating queer stuff just now, just now we are incorporating queer stuff. Um and so you want to make sure and porn is everywhere. Porn is everywhere, right. and yeah. teens will go to it. And porn, you know, ethically made porn, I have no problem with. Sure, Yep, but, absolutely. Uh, it's not sex, and so mm-hmm. in fact, when I was writing the sex scene in camp, and I got this pushback from my editors, my response was, "Look, I'm not trying to like write erotica for teens, <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> what I want to do is sort of show." A healthy sex scene that they can model their own sex scene on. And because it was romantic comedy, for me that sex scene was like about laughter and lube and like, you know. Right. And it was supposed to be silly and funny and still feel good because I think that's what an idealized sort of first sexual encounter is. Um so messy and filled with laughter, not like super hot, porn, whatever.
0: Right. Yeah. But-
1: I think in Far From You, it's a very realistic sexual depiction in that it's, like, super messed up with the emotions going on in it right now. Like, I feel Mm -hmm. like camp, the sex scene, emotionally is very clean. Um, But this is, like, really complicated, and I love that. And I tried to do that in Jack, too, where Jack talks about losing um, an aspect of his virginity and uh, his first time having anal sex, and that I tried to make extremely messy. Because I think for a lot of teens, the first time you lose your, uh, the first time you have sex, you, you, it can be extremely messy. Sure. Uh, um, yeah. This was a great, Far From You was a great example of that because of all the like weird anger, sex, like attraction emotions happening. And the way that it's done just felt very real. Yeah. Uh, so I love that. Be- I loved how on the page it was because of that too.
0: It is. And, and just the, the emotional angle of it, I think is something that isn't seen enough, no matter what the sex scene is in in teen, in teen books. Um, And in this, like, yes, there's physical, yes, it's on the page. But as you mentioned, like, the emotions are really what's here. And it's not emotions of necessarily, like, fear, this is the first time I'm going to have sex. It's like, angry, you know, it's angry, and it's ugly, and it's complicated. and. Yeah, it's also completely consensual. This is not...
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. Just to be clear. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah, as we're talking, I'm like, I should make it clear. Like, this is not, um, you know, unwarranted. This is totally consensual.
1: And it's not like, not, like, as simply categorized as hate sex or anything either. Right, yeah, it yeah. deep, passionate love sex. But it's like really complicated love sex. <laughs> yeah.
0: And and Sophie says at the very, very end, I want to remember everything because it's the first time. And then the next sentence is just a tiny bit different. Later, I'll remember everything because it's only time or it's the only time rather. Mm-hmm. And it's like, ooh, those two lines are a gut punch.
1: I know. Yeah. It's like, oh, man, I, it, it was... <sighs> I mean, you know, going in that the chance that they have like since reconciled before Mina gets killed is is n- negligibly like like maybe there'll be some weird flashback where it's like and we were happily ever after <laughs> and then she died, which would make everything like really devastating too. Although the way she does go is even more devastating, but that's besides the point. But uh, um, <laughs> the so like but like reminding us being like. Yeah, by the way, the only time they got to really express their love and attraction and like be a couple in the way that they wanted to be a couple was this moment of also anger. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like it was not a perfect moment and it will be their only moment. And that is just devastating. It is. is very good at devastating. (laughs)
0: You bring up the point about, you know, had they had that nice, like, happily ever after. I think the thing that kept this book so good for me and better in the second read is that Tess Sharp does not give any, any easy moments in this book. So there's never like a, you know, giving. It's like, no, she's going to take it to the edge and then push you off. Yeah. And... That is what made it I think so compelling is it's like I, you know, yes, the the murder mystery is in here, but that was way less interesting to me than like what is Sophie going to do about this or what is she going to think about this? What kind of pushback is she going to get? It's it's sharp and it's rocky and there's never a moment where you're like, "Well, that was too easy."
1: <laughs> no. No, no, none
0: of this is ever (laughs) easy. No, but I mean, I've read enough, you know, thrillers where, and maybe this is my, my challenge with thrillers, especially psychological thrillers is I kind of know by page four, what's going to happen. And this one, even having read it before, I was like, well, I don't care what happens. I want to know about this character. Um, it's way less about the the who done it, and much more about the the who in the story.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, by the end when we figure out who did it, I feel I, like I felt like I kind of knew mm-hmm. who it was. Like I felt like we had like it just based on sort of the conventions of the genre. Here's someone who's yeah. been there, you know, that sort of stuff. And so, and uh, honestly, I feel like this is part of part of being a modern reader is sort of the issue and like lover even of genre is uh the issue of that sort of like there are no surprises vibe because sure, we, yeah. we read the book we read the conventions and we apply the book to the conventions and our brains have been trained to do this at this point and sort of like so we can we we're meta readers essentially where we're not just in the book um but we are in the book and we are applying everything we know about the genre to the book to sort of and so our clues don't come from the actual text they come from our outside knowledge of how the text should operate um and this is why i write for teens though is because <laughs> why i love writing for teens is because they like haven't quite been trained like that yet yes and for so sure They, uh yeah so but uh, anyway that's a digression
0: But it's a really good one because I think that that's a great reminder for adults who read YA especially. And it's something that I have to remind myself of when I'm reading, say, something like a thriller where I'm like, oh, I know what's going to happen and who's going to do it. I have to step back and say, well, the book's not for me. Um, I can read it, but I'm not the primary audience here. And I need to remember that like Mm -hmm. my experience with this genre with these stories is different than the 14-year-old who discovers it for the first time. And stepping back and remembering that lets me read it with those eyes, as opposed to my adult jaded, you know, been there, done that eyes.
1: You can turn off your jaded eyes. I'm so jealous.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I did start this episode by saying all thrillers are the same to me. So (laughs) (laughs) good point. point. (laughs) I could at least reflect on my own um, shortcomings when it comes to what how I'm reading a book, uh, particularly a YA book.
1: I I mean that that is one of the loves of writing for teenagers is just the way that they they don't have that meta brain built in. They don't have that sort of like ah oh, yes I will unpack the genre. I mean plenty of them do. Don't get me wrong. Sure, <laughs> we yeah. all know jaded teens, but like there are like especially readers i feel like like you know really teenage readers who love books they they that part of them where they will just unpack a thing and be like this is how it's going to end i know by page 4 which you do and i do um it it's not there for them or at least they can turn it off really easily and i think even for the most jaded teenager who loves books the reason they love books is because books is the one place it, that they're not jaded
0: <laughs> yeah I think you're right. I think you're spot on. Let's talk a little bit about one of the big secrets in this book is that um, Sophie and Mina are in love with each other. And Sophie is bisexual. She uses the word. Mina, I believe, says she's lesbian, but she dates a guy um, and she has feelings for a guy. So I don't know if she just didn't have the word or didn't use it for what she was experiencing or, you know, changed her experience.
1: I think I remember it as Sophie saying or yes yeah, Sophie says that Mina defined herself as a lesbian. Yeah. Um, and she didn't have any sexual interest in guys. She does date a guy um but they never have sex. Right. Says, yeah. And when she, and and this is getting sort of later in the book but when she breaks up with him and sort of tells him the truth essentially um, she, my understanding was she told him that she really cared about him but wasn't into him,
0: yeah. So she had that emotional, romantic, uh, well, maybe not even romantic, just emotional connection,
1: yeah. That part is unclear. Like, I don't know if you want to call her like you know, homosexual, bi romantic, or if maybe sure. it was really int or maybe she just really cared about this guy like a friend and but she was using him because she so desperately wanted to be perceived as straight.
0: Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which I think that's sort of where I wanted to take this conversation um, about the book and when it was published and just sort of where YA is now. I wonder if this book were published today, if those would be a little bit more defined or more sort of identities would be discussed
1: I wondered about that too. Um, and I don't know, like part of it that makes me feel like this would be, this would fly today, no problems, yeah. is the location, which is a small town in the Pacific Northwest, which like, yes. you know, it like Portland uh, we all know of as like, you know, happy queer space, but Pacific Northwest in general, like besides being a pretty racist space, um mm-hmm. is not the most accepting of queer people, you know, outside of the major cities. Um, uh, so I, yeah, I, I that was what made it okay for me. Like this town is very much described and very small and very everyone's in everyone's business. Um, so I and you know then on top of it, Mina's parents are religious, so it all made a certain sense to me and I would buy it. But I did sort of wonder if it was almost like the internet was absent. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yes. Like you almost expect them to be like, I'm going to go online and find a chat room and like talk about my sexuality. And it's funny because like, you feel like that's how a lot of people are today. But I don't know how many books are really about like finding your queer community online, and maybe that's something mm. someone should write, but yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh that idea of like i I felt like that's where there's like it, it's not a disconnect with today, but like it came close, it skirts close to the idea, and I think if the environment wasn't so well described, I would have been like, but. You know, just because mm-hmm. in my books today, we really expect a lot more like and I am gay, and like these are those like you know I identify and here's what I know about being gay um or from the internet, and like all of that is is absent in this book, but it feels like a place and a book honestly, where it's allowed to be absent,
0: yeah. I like that you brought up the setting because that's really, I think what sold me the second time through and that this is still completely believable because it is, it's uh, Northern California and like, I believe that's that setting nearby where they like want to break off into their own separate state because it's such a different Mm -hmm. mindset and mentality than they think the rest of California is.
1: It was California. For some reason, I definitely thought it was like Oregon.
0: (laughs) The ants in Portland, but I believe they talked about Mount Shasta in here, and that's California. Oh, okay. But very remote, you know, in the mountains, and it nails that setting and nails that small town mentality, and the fact that the everybody knew something about somebody else there um, that mm-hmm. led to solving this mystery made how they had to talk about their relationship make perfect sense.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And like the the whole like, well, this family has been in charge forever. Like that whole <laughs> small town vibe. And yeah. like, oh, I know this person because my brother knew him and they used to hang out. And like, yeah, like everyone was connected in some way. Mm-hmm. And so it felt like a town where if you ain't ready to come out, you've got to keep that secret yeah. because otherwise like everyone is going to know.
0: For sure. And, and so it makes me wonder, like, I think Tess Sharp has another YA coming out next year, maybe. Um, She's written a few books in between, but nothing that has been similar to this. And I wonder if like what a book like this from her would look like in today's world.
1: Ooh, that's a good question. You should call her and ask her. (laughs) Like (laughs) I was part of me was like, wait, she has a show. Can she just call people and ask them questions?
0: Well, wouldn't it be funny if I had her on here now and was like oh, yeah.
1: surprise? So- it's that yes. scene from me.
0: <laughs> we do not have her on the line, but um <laughs> I just I wonder if it would even be more messy and complicated. Um, just the grappling with so many identities that as you brought up, like the teen gets on the internet and and sort of finds these communities or finds these words that label feelings and experiences that they didn't know existed, because that mm-hmm. all goes right back to where we started this conversation about what sex ed is for teens today.
1: Yeah. I will say that, that Sophie never seems lost or confused about her sexuality. No,
0: no Sophie she did
1: not. Like, yeah, she, she's just like, yeah, I like boys and girls, and I'm clearly in love with my best friend. And I have this tension with my best friend's brother. Yeah. And so she's very like, there's no shame from her about her sexuality. Um, which, you know, is great because that's exactly what I feel like we, we, we need a lot of in YA. Yes. Um, so it's good to see it and it's definitely good to see it in a sort of pre-Simon context. But yeah, I, I felt like, I wonder if maybe the, the like, need to identify feelings and labels and all that. I wonder if maybe like that is why I never felt like it was missing just because she just was like, yeah, I'm bisexual. I don't need to go into it further. And so the the complications of the feelings are more about specific people. Mm, and yeah. I feel like, you know, you're not going to be able to find online ha- like a specific cluster of feelings for your best friend who you might, who you've known forever you might be in love with and also maybe, her brother who crashed the car and looks at you with pity and lust and like you know <laughs> there's so much complicated stuff in all of it um uh, that it I think maybe that's another reason we were never like it it, it never even it felt missing
0: yeah i wonder though if that sort of access and discussion would have um not necessarily come from sophie but from others in the story in terms of not necessarily accepting her and Mina, but looking at their relationship a little bit differently, but mm-hmm. you know it's all speculation. you can't know because it happened yeah. in the theoretical past um.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'll tweet it Miss Sharp afterwards, and i will i mean i don't I don't know her personally or anything. I don't think we've ever met, but you know, after reading her book, I think when it goes up, we should tweet her and be like, "So would you change anything <laughs>
0: It would be fascinating. I wanted to end this with talking about genre, because when we picked this book, you wanted a murder mystery and that's exactly what we got. But Mm -hmm. even since this book's publication, finding genre and specifically mystery where a queer teen is centered and the hero of the story is still so rare.
1: It is. I mean, we got, we got Kayla Rarig. We got Tom Ryan. Mm -hmm. Like, so it's out there, but it feels like it's not centered. And I think that's because conversations about queer YA are always centered around romance. Mm. And that's partially because the people who do the centering of the conversation are generally straight women. Mm hmm. And, you know, no judgment there. Straight women are allowed to read. I encourage straight people of all
0: uh, <laughs> genders
1: to read about queer people. Lord knows sure. queer people have to read about straight people all the time Right, for sure. So I highly encourage that. But I feel like there's a certain expectation. And this is a lot of why I wrote Jack of Hearts in the first mm-hmm. place. Um, that there's this expectation that queer YA... Feature a certain type of queer and a certain type of queer story. Yes. And that queer usually is shy and awkward and not particularly aggressive or feminine. And the story is always one of first or true love, um, sometimes not first. And the, it, it's always a, it's a, a safe story with a safe character. And people don't want queer teenagers to be messy. And they don't Mm -hmm. like the idea of there being lots of different stories. You know, I think that when these conversations happen, it's always about like, love is love because, and queerness is defined through love and, um, you know, queer people deserve love. So like, let's put these stories in the middle. And I appreciate that. And I think that's a very valuable point of view, but I think that, you know, if you only focus on one story and this goes for any minority, you end up doing some harm um, in that, you know, you tell these queer people that there's only one story for them. There's only one way for them to be acceptable. And so murder mysteries, suspense, thriller, those are usually messier stories Mm -hmm. and that you usually have a messier protagonist in there. And I mean, so it, it, centering those would be about sort of centering messy queer characters. And I think people shy away from that either because they feel like it's setting a bad example and it's sort of going against the model minority kind of vibes that uh, get put on all minorities. Um, But in terms of queer people, it tends to be about a gentle, soft love story that is, your, that is the model minority in queer YA. And so anyone who, who drifts from that is going to not get centered as much because that's not what this vast majority of readers, straight people, want queer people to be. Um, and that, obviously, that generalization there at the end doesn't apply to everyone. Mm-hmm. Many straight people out there are going, that's not how I feel. Congratulations. I wasn't talking about you. <laughs> um, so it, you know, that, that, But th- I think that that is what we are always sort of fighting. And it's not about what's being published necessarily, although that's certainly part of it. Because like I said, these books are out there. Mm-hmm. The issue is that, and I I don't know if you've gotten your hands on it yet, considering your your podcasting partner, but if you haven't read Adam Sass and Surrender Your Sons yet, ooh, that's such a good book. And it oh, is really read. dealing with everything that I'm talking about here, because it's about the messiness of queerness and the messiness of the homophobia that we still deal with in many ways. And it's like, it's not a sweet romance at all. But um, so I think that the all these stories that aren't romances tend to get pushed to the side. They don't get talked about as much. And because of that, publishers obviously don't see them as making as much money, and so they don't buy as many, yada, yada, yada. But what we really need to be doing is talking about how there is more than one queer story, how there are all of these different queer Stories out there that need to be written, and they're not all sweet. They're not all romances, and the queer kids get to be messy in ways that aren't adorable. They're not, you know, you know, there's rom com mm-hmm. messy, like how <laughs> the blonde girl's always clumsy. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, the y- you want like a you want a kid who you know sleeps with the wrong guy uh, because they're horny one day. Uh, you want mm-hmm. the kid who is a drug addict. You want the kid, you know, like this one. And so I feel like that is why these stories get pushed to the side. And it's because people want gay people to be this idealized version of themselves. And that's the story that they want. That's the story that the straight community wants about. And we're talking about liberal, you know, happily pro-gay marriage, would never consider themselves homophobic, and I'm not sure I would use that word either, but these are people who define good queerness and bad queerness, Mm -hmm. consciously or unconsciously, and the moment you start thinking of it that way, the moment you start thinking about the idea that, well, that gay protagonist is slutty and therefore does not deserve love, (sighs) that's a problem, and that is something that is... Whether, like, that is homophobia. Mm -hmm. I mean, that word bugs me sometimes because I feel like the word, I think, I feel like phobia being in it really sort of, like, makes people be like, I'm not afraid of them. And it's like, no, you're not afraid of it. That's not what it means anymore. It means that you think there's only one story. You think that queer people, even though you love them, you support gay marriage, you want them to be happy you want everyone to come out of the closet. You would never reject anyone. And I believe all that about you. I believe that you are a good person, but the moment you start saying, okay, but you know, there's a better way to be queer. Mm
0: -hmm. You got to shut up
1: because that's especially as a straight person, but also as a queer person, like that is not your place to say there's no wrong way to be queer. And I think that the more stories we show about queerness and the more stories we tell that don't, center this one sort of narrative the more that's going to come across and you know i tried to do that in my books too you know jack obviously was sort of the opposite of the model minority that was the whole mm-hmm. point with him someone who didn't want love someone who wanted to sleep around um and his stories about someone sort of trying to force him to be this model minority um uh, and camp is an entirely queer cast so that I could show off all these different ways of being queer. And it's about someone sort of trying to become a more model minority to win love. So it's something I deal with in my writing <laughs> a lot. <laughs> and I think that stories like far from you have these messy queer protagonists and that's why they don't get centered as much.
0: I think this is the perfect place to wrap up our
1: conversation. Cause I'm on no, for, like, me- for 20 minutes. So, Okay. <laughs> But I mean
0: you said you said stuff I think that people need to hear and also like certainly gave a good pitch not just for your books but for far from you too and and why a book like oh, this I will
1: I will be pitching this book for a while I look yeah. forward to this podcast coming out
0: Yeah oh it's so it was so great to revisit it
1: Yeah if you only got interested in queer YA after Simon please go back read mm-hmm. far from you you can go back to the earliest one uh oh damn what is it called i'll get there it better be worth the wait which came out in 1969 um before stonewall Mm -hmm. uh this is like you know if if you're interested in queer ya and i hope you are straight you know asexual no uh, well asexual is queer but uh, any kind of person any kind of sexuality you have i hope you're interested in queer ya and i hope you're interested in it in a historical sense too because we've been here for a very long time and we're going to be here for a long time and the more different stories that you support and i mean that financially by my book um (laughs) the more more diversity of stories we're going to get and the more queer teens are going to be told hey there's more than one way to be queer
0: awesome thank you thank you yeah. Um. Thank you to today's sponsor for making the show possible, and big thank you for joining me today. I can be followed at Hey Kelly Jensen on Instagram and Live. Do you want to tell them where they can find you and remind them the names of your last two YA books? Sure,
1: sure. Um, I'm on Twitter, Instagram, I, on everything. I uh. And my handle is the same on both. It's at Lev A.C. Rosen. That's L-E-V-A-C-R-O-S-E-N, one word. Um, And I can be found at levacrosen.com. And my book that just came out or is coming out, I don't know when this is going up, (laughs) is Camp. And it comes out the same day as my last book comes out in paperback, Jack of Hearts and Other Parts, now with bonus content. Oh, no. Yeah, no, there's so many letters in the back Ooh, I'll send you one um, <laughs> And uh, Yeah, and I You know, I have adults in middle grade too And there's so many wonderful Queer YA books coming out Please find them Like, you know Just support them, find them Because that's what lets publishers Publish more
0: Thank you so
1: much Thank you This was so much fun.
0: This was. And to all of our listeners out there, um, Eric and I will see you again next week for the main podcast. And until then, happy reading.